Thank you. All right, we're going to start uh, the fifth class, the appeal. The appeal, we're going to look at the appeal today. So you have your handouts. Everyone has a handout, right? Everyone's set? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the first one, if you could turn to me to Acts 26, 27. Acts 26, 27, chapter 26, verse 27. In your Bibles, now the, the appeal is the most important part of the sermon. Remember, the failure or success of your sermon is based upon your appeal. And your, your main goal in preaching is for the people to turn from their sins, right, and turn to Jesus. And, of course, before we do this, we must also turn to Jesus first because of his love for us, right? So that's what we want. So before we begin on appeals, let us pray. Father, as the word is open, we ask for your teaching, your leading, that we may learn from you is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Now we're going to look at appeals. Now, what did Paul do at the end of his sermon in Acts chapter 26? Could somebody read that, please? Okay, what is he doing here? He gave a whole sermon to King Agrippa. And what is he doing right here now? He's what? He's making an appeal. Do you see that? He goes, he, he did his sermon. He said, we need, Jesus Christ was sent to us, Christ suffered, he died, he was resurrected, and at the end it says, King Agrippa, by name he called him out. He said, believe, do you believe the prophets? That's a question, he's calling on a question. With a question, what is required at the end, when somebody asks you a question, what do you normally expect, and what? An answer, so he did it a question, meaning he wants an answer for him to respond. And then not only did he, and not only that, but he added an appeal to him, he said, an extra appeal, he said, I know you believe. Don't try and run from the Holy Spirit. I know you believe. I'm asking you, do you believe? But I know you believe. Sometimes I use that when I'm Bible study or preaching. I know you love God. That's why you're here, right? I'm assuming that you love God. I'm assuming you want to commit your life to God. He did the same thing in his appeal. Now look at your handouts as you look at it. Um, Paul made an appeal at the end of his sermon. Now testimony, volume 6. Notice what it says here. It says, at the close of how many meetings? How many? Every meeting. Decisions should be what? Called for. Do you see that? So the end of every meeting, decisions should be called for. Look at the next one. In how many discourses it says? In how many? In every discourse, fervent appeals should be made to the people to forsake their sins and turn to Christ. So you need to make an appeal in every discourse. Now, what has happened in our church, in the Adventist church, is that some people don't like when you make appeals. And let me back up. You've got to know church history. What has happened in the past is that um, pastors and church leaders, when they preached, uh, what they've done is that they didn't use the Spirit of God and God's love to motivate. What they used was they used manipulation and guilt, Right? And they make it appeal and they make you feel guilty. And, and sometimes the Holy Spirit is making you feel guilty. Not always the person, but nevertheless, the, the, manipulate, the motivation was not because of love. The motivation was because you need to do this and you don't do it, you're, you're going to be lost. So the guilt, the manipulation was there. The motivation was not right. And so what's happened is that there's been a reaction in our church. And so a lot of people today don't like it when you make appeal. I, I, just, I was just told like a couple of months ago that they don't like it when, they don't like it when I make appeals. People don't like appeals because of what happened in the past. Well, they didn't say me. They just said in general, I don't like appeals, okay? And that's because of what, and of course, you're only going to hear from the older generation because they've been, they have a lot of baggage of what happened in the past. The younger generation love appeals. I mean, it is because they never hear. What's happened, this is what's happened. The older generation have been heard so much appeals that's been wrong motivation, manipulation, and guilt. So they got turned off, and so they reacted and said, we don't want any appeals. So what happened, a lot of people are preaching, they're not making any appeals. It's just information, right? So what happens, a younger, whole new generation rolls up not knowing Joseph, who don't even know um, about appeals. So when all of a sudden you make an appeal, it's like the young people just respond like crazy because they never heard it before. I mean, when I go to places and I speak, and I make an altar call, not just a raise your hand or stand up. When I make an altar call, you're talking about, 
I mean, you're talking about half the church or two-thirds of the church coming up, or even, I went to church where I had like 90% of the church or 95, a couple of churches were like that. Why? Because no one makes appeals. No one makes appeals anymore. And so we've lost the counsel of making appeals. So what you need to do is, practically, you need to explain to these people um, the reason why you make appeals. And we're going to go through that, why. And explain, you know, I feel conviction. I need to make an appeal to these people. Explain to these people why you're doing it. Uh, so they can understand what point, uh, where you're coming from, and explain to them why, and uh, and still make the appeals. Now, another thing about appeals is you always make it in the first person. Like, like when I'm preaching, I say I always say I bring myself into the sermon. You notice that I say we need a revival, right? I don't just say you. I say we need a revival. And now I go one step beyond that. I say I need a revival. Don't I say that? I need a revival. I need a reformation. I'm not just putting on you, right? And then at the end, but at the end when you make an appeal, you already know I said we need a revival. I said that already. You already know I said I need a revival, right? Now I need to make it to you now. I, 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 I preach to myself. I know I need that. But now I need to preach to you. And my preaching is going to be like, and you need a revival too. And that's what's going to, the Holy Spirit's going to take those words and He's going to grab those words and He's going to convict your heart. Because I said you. Yes, we. Yes, me. But uh, you too, right? <laughs> and that's what you need to do when you're out there. Make the appeal. Say, you need a, you need a revival in your life. You need a reformation. I need a revival in my life. How about you? If you want to revive, if you want to revive in your life, why don't you say amen with me? Amen or raise your hand with me, right? That's what I do. So I make an appeal. You know that every sermon, I always do an appeal. Now, there was a time where I uh, made, don't you remember before, I used to make way stronger appeals, like maybe five times more stronger. I, when I be first, I make appeals like all year, like in a church, and I make appeals for baptisms all the time. People come forward for baptisms. But my emphasis, I guess I, I did this series, and as I'm doing appeal, I realized, hey, I've been slacking. I'm not doing appeals like I used to do them. My, my emphasis switched from appeals to my content. I've been focusing a lot, so much on my content, I kind of let my appeals slack. But this actually brought me back to, like, I need to make more appeals. Not just only raise your hand all the time or in your mind, but I need to make, like, altar calls more. Like, today, you know, who knows out there? Some people will need to make that. Last week, I made an altar call. Uh, well, we knelt down and said, you pray to God in your heart. That if you want a revival, you're going to commit yourself to God. And um, people came up to me and said to me, Pastor, uh, your call for revival was the answer to prayer. Now, how are they going to do that unless you actually make the appeal or make an opportunity for people to respond? If you don't do that, you can do more harm. Now, let's go on to this study. Because um, let me read verse 28. How did King Agrippa respond to this appeal? Can somebody read that, please? Okay, so he said, do you believe in the prophets, King Agrippa? I know you believe. And then he said, then Agrippa said, the king said to Paul, you almost persuade me to be a what? A Christian, you almost persuaded me. In other words, was he convicted? Was he convicted? He was convicted, wasn't he? The Holy Spirit convicted him. Why? Because Paul, and Paul did not make an appeal. There would be no means for the Holy Spirit to Make the conviction. In other words, if you don't ask the question, if you don't make an appeal, your sermon is going to be wasted. It's like, it's only when Paul made the appeal that King Agrippa was actually convicted, convicted and almost persuaded to be a Christian. It was that powerful. Can you imagine a king of that stature that, with the pride and everything, like almost, almost persuaded to be a, a Christian? Pretty powerful. Now, if Paul did not make an appeal, King Agrippa would not have an opportunity to respond, right? you got to make that appeal. Okay, look at the handout here again. In every congregation, there are souls who are what? What is that word? Okay, follow me along, okay? Almost decided, almost decided to be holy for God. Decisions are being made, but too often the minister has not the spirit and power of the message and no direct, what is that word? Appeals are made to those who are trembling in the balance. So, in how many congregations is it there? 
in how many? Most congregation? What does it say? In every. So we can say that in every church service, in every congregation, is not the Holy Spirit moving, right? And is there not people who are wavering and making decisions, right? If that's true of every com- congregation, should not we make an appeal at every sermon we preach, right? Make an appeal in every discourse. Questions, thoughts, ideas? And it, I mean, I sat there for, it seemed like forever, and I, I don't know how, hmm. I don't know why, I don't know why, but, you know, the appeal kept coming, kept coming, kept coming, kept hmm. coming. People repeated the appeal. Hmm. The speaker was making repeated appeal? Speaker, yeah. Uh, wow. And I don't really remember what he said, but whatever he said, it, it grabbed my heart. Hmm. I remember how it felt, hmm. and I remember knowing that if I didn't get up then, then I would probably never get a chance to get up ever again. Hmm. And that, that persistence hmm. is, I think, what helped hmm. me, well, it is, it's what helped me to do it. What if he gave up and stopped, stopped the appeal at the beginning? Would you have gone up? No. Hmm. Hmm. What if he never made an appeal? I wouldn't be here today. Yeah. I know that. Pretty powerful. Do you know what the best training for appeals is? Do you guys know? Does anyone know? Something called colporting. <laughs> now you're thinking, what does colporting have to do with preaching or Bible work? Very, pretty simple. Basically, when you go to a door, there's something called um, a, a close. And when I call porter, they say, and a close is what you're doing is you're asking them to make a decision for a sale. So when they gave us a canvas we had to memorize for colporting, they said memorize your clothes because they say 90% of the sale of people buying your sp- religious books is based upon your clothes. So in other words, um, I go to the door and say, we leave these books on a donational basis. Whatever you do can help us out, our young people, help us out in our education. We accept cash or check. How many books would you like to buy? And they say, well, I'm not, I'm not sure. I said, you know, again, we accept cash or check. I mean, it does help us out. Any amount can help us out. We really appreciate it. Um, how many books would we like to um, buy? We'd like to buy this one. I, I reclose again. And then they're not sure I reclose until the, you're, not, you're learning. In other words, you're practicing on religious books. So when you come to Bible studies in the home or preaching from the pulpit, you're not practicing on human souls. Does that make sense? So that's what corporating is all about. It's helping you to learn how to close, how to make uh, um, appeals. And I've learned how to make appeals in the home and also from the preaching. No, I'm getting back into appeals again, but that's because I've learned how to make appeals and callporting in for, for sales. Do you see the parallels here, the correlation? So that's why callporting is very important. And 90% of the sale uh, is based upon the clothes. In the same way, 90% of the success of a sermon is found in appeal. That's how important your appeal is. You got to have a good appeal at the end. You got to make it, it count. Uh, don't use wrong motivation and wrong manipulation, but use a uh, appeal that's based upon the love of God, right? Amen? That's what we need, the love of God. Thoughts, questions? Okay, verse 29. Can somebody read that, please? What did Paul then do? Look at verse 29. He made an appeal. The king was convicted, almost gave in. And in verse 29, what he said? What did Paul say? Who's he talking to? The king and <laughs> everybody, right? And then what did he say? I wish what? Word to God that what? What do you mean I want you to be like I am? What do you mean by that? What is he saying? 
a believer. In other words, I wish you were a believer. I wish you were a Christian like I am, except for what? It'd be exactly like me, except for what? What does it say there in the text? Bonds, meaning what? what is a bond? The chain. In other words, I wish you were exactly like me, except for me being a prisoner. And what I'm really talking about is I wish you were a Christian like me. That's what he's really saying, right? So in other words, he made the appeal. He was convicted. And the people, King Agrippa was convicted. You almost persuaded me to be a Christian. And what did he do? He saw that he was convicted. He made another appeal. I said, I wish you were a Christian, King Agrippa. And everyone else here, except for these, I wish you were exactly like me, except for these bonds. In other words, you make the appeal. You see people's convictions. And you be directing your um, appeals and person with your appeals. And then you make another appeal at the end. That's what he did. He did a second appeal in this story, right? So you follow in the biblical model of how we need to preach. Now look at the handout there about general appeals, as she says here. Uh, could somebody read that, please? Well, what does she say about, I don't want to say about general appeals. Just in, in general. Okay, so if I say, you know, today can we just get, uh, how many just want to, I don't know, uh, generally get to know, generally get to know God more, you know, generally, yeah. I mean, if you do that, it has a little effect. We need to be, or like, we need, how many of us need to have, need to know God more, whatever. What, what the Spirit of Prophecy talks about here is actually a direct appeal. Now, let's go to the next quotation. It's more clear. Could you read some of that, please? Uh, the secret success, the, the bold print part. Okay, so the secret of our success and power, two things, as a people advocating advanced truth, which is us, I hope, will be found in making two types of appeals. What does it say? Making what? Direct, number one, and what else? Personal appeals to those who are interested in having unwavering alliance upon the Most High. So we need to have two things, direct and personal. You need to say you, right? King Agrippa, you. You called him out. Now, you don't have to call our names out while you're preaching. I don't call, hey, Marco, right, when I'm preaching, or Jordan, or Lloyd. But um, you need to say you. That's a direct appeal. That's the secret of your success and power as we advocate truth, right? So you got to make, and I know that, you know, there's a movement, but you know what? I think this, the generation knew not Joseph. In other words, this whole new generation is raising up. They haven't heard appeals. The older generation is tired of it, but the younger generation and middle, you know, my generation and younger have not heard appeals. So we're open to it. You're going to have to battle the older generation, but the younger generation, we love appeals. I love appeals. I love when people make appeals. I, mean, I, I love when my heart is like convicted and the knife stabs me in my heart. I mean, I just love that pain. I don't know. It's a good pain, right? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? That like you feel the Holy Spirit's conviction? You guys know that, right? I love that. I don't know. I, could, I can't sit in a sermon that somebody calls me to do something. I, I just feel like I don't want to just sit down and waste my time. I, I want you to challenge me. I want you to be, uh, I like it strong. I, I like it when like, oh, I like fall on my knees and weep, you know. That's what I want to do. But when I don't hear appeals, like, oh, I just heard like a nice info commercial or whatever, you know. I just don't, I don't want that. I want, even they may say, even they say call what? Now, right? They make appeals and call now. Because they know if you don't make, they know that if you don't call now, what's going to happen? Are you going to call next week? No. no. <laughs> and I'm, ex yeah, I want to buy that, that health product or whatever. But ask me a couple of days later when I thought about it, hmm, I really don't have the money for that. I'm not going to buy it, right? So uh, in the same way, when you make the appeal, you want them to make a decision now, right? The Holy Spirit's moving. We're going to get more into that, actually. So, um, in every trade, there's a secret called tricks of the trade, right? You heard about that, right? I've always wanted to learn the tricks of the trade. Somebody told me that. Forget the tricks of the trade. Learn the trade, yeah? <laughs> we don't even know trades anymore, right? We've forgotten how to do anything. We always hire people now. But learn the trade. But tricks of the trade. And in preaching, the trick of the trade is knowing how to make a good appeal. You've got to learn how to make a good appeal. That's your, 
If there's a trick to the trick to the trade of preaching, it's learning how to make good appeals. You got to remember that. Once you know how to make good appeals, um, that's the most important thing for you to do. In in order to do this, in other words, it's better to have a lousy sermon and end with a good appeal than to have a good sermon and a lousy appeal. If you can have like you know, at least you got some thoughts in there in the, in the body, but it's not as good as you wish it was. But at the end, you actually made a strong appeal. People are going to remember that, that appeal at the end, and, you know what? They, and because they made a decision also, they're going to more likely um, follow God because there was an opportunity to accept the message, how fumbled it was, you know, the foolishness of preaching. So if you can make uh, a strong appeal, a strong appeal will save a sermon. Now, in order to do this, what you need to do is Write out like a, in within one sentence or a paragraph, there's a couple of sentences, what is the purpose of your sermon? And then make your appeal based upon that sentence that you wrote about your sermon. I do that for my, I make, I make series, sermon series. I guess I go, I go overboard. <laughs> I make a description of my series, I write a whole paragraph, and it takes me like one paragraph, takes me like a couple hours, just for the whole series, at least so I can get a big picture of the whole series. And then it takes me a couple more hours just to create sermon titles. I uh, had somebody from Advent Hope or Audioverse. Uh, they checked out my sermon to see how well it did, and they said, oh, Pastor Kelly, your sermon did really well on Audioverse. And you know what they said to me? They said, you know why? Because you have such catchy titles. And you never think about it, but I spend hours on my titles. I mean, just to make sure it's catchy. I mean, like some today was off, but like my series, and actually I preached a series and I changed my titles after I preached my series. And I try to make it catchy um, because that title, I want to capture it. The, you know how we did imagination? I re- rework the words until it says the right thing and then I um, take the picture, right? And so that's what I do with the, my sermon. So you want to um, write it out so you know what you want to do and wrap your, your appeal around that. Any thoughts, questions? ideas okay so turn to Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 7 and 8 we're going to look, look at another thing so we look at the need for appeals we know that we need it and then let's look at Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 7 and 8 and let's look at what Jeremiah what did God say to Jeremiah let's look at reading people Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 7 and 8 what did God say to Jeremiah Can somebody read that please Okay, so God told him that I want to, you say whatever I command you to speak, right? And then what did it say here in verse 8? To what? Be not afraid of, of their what? What they're going to, with the knives, the guns, no what? Ah, so how can you preach a sermon? Why did God tell Jeremiah to not be afraid of their facial expressions if Jeremiah was looking in his notes and reading his sermon the whole time. Are you following me? In other words, you need to read the people. It's more important that you are reading the people than you are reading your notes. You got to read the people. Every situation is different. I go, I, I'll go to a church, first time I'm there. When, before I preach in a church, you know what I'm doing? I'm, I'm calling up people in that church. I'm writing emails. I want to know what is the, uh, the, what is the uh, demographics of that church. I want to know what is the age groups, how much young people, is it an older church, how much little children. Um, I want to know uh, what ethnicity, you know, if it's a multicultural church. I want to know if it's African American. I want to know if it's local people. I want to know uh, is it a spiritual church, spiritual church, is it an active church. I want to know what their weaknesses are. Uh, what messages do you think that people need to hear? That's, I want to know everything there is about the people because I want to know my audience. And then when I go there to that church, it's almost like I'm nearby and I surveyed the walls before I spoke to the people. I know what their needs are. And it's like, almost like they feel what it is because the Lord takes what I'm saying and they're like, this guy, 
came to our church. He doesn't know anything that's going on and exactly what I need to hear. Yes, it was the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit took the questions I had, right, and made a sermon out of it. Are you following me? Or had a sermon and adjusted to the people what the needs are. And that God can work in a more mighty way if you know what the needs are of the people, right? Any thoughts, questions? You got to know your people. You got to know your audience. You got to read the people. I've been in places where I'm preaching, and I'm like, man, the sermon is just not hitting them. I can just, <laughs> I can see it. This is not, not reaching the people. And I, I'll, cu- I'll cut sermons short because they're not with me, or I change the directions. I'll move my, from my sermon notes to something totally, and I said, I need to connect more because I'm just not connecting with them, and I'm reading their faces. But some churches are, a lot of Adventists today, this is my own thoughts, but a lot of Adventists, especially in traditional churches, they've heard the same thing over and over and over, and they're not really followed the conviction of the Holy Spirit and never been brought appeals to, that their faces are like not reacting with excitement, not reacting with disgust, but just like bland. Like you cannot read the face. And so when I'm, I'm preaching, I'm like, I've been in a church, I have a hard time reading where they're at. And sometimes I wait till after and they go, oh, that was a good sermon. But from up there, I can't read. Like this church is easy to read. I can look and I can see people following me. I can see the conviction grabbing people's hearts. I can see the reaction of people who maybe don't like a certain thing that's a cherished idol that hits them. I can see it easily because the facial expressions are easily revealed here. But in some churches where I'm preaching, it's hard to read, very hard to read. Uh, Not to say this is always true, but um, mostly in like ethnic churches like that, you can see more easily. African-American, they're very expressive. You go in a church, you know exactly where they're at. Um, And so it depends on the type of church um, that you go to. That's why I was trying to find out what are the demographics of each church and where they're really at. Uh, any thoughts, questions, ideas? Okay, look at that quotation. Let me read it. It says here, you cannot see the operating agency, talking about the Holy Spirit, but you can see it's what? Effects. So I can preach, and I don't see the Holy Spirit when I'm preaching and when every one of you, right? But I can tell you this, I do see your reaction to my preaching, right? And I can read you in what you're thinking. One thing, another thing Cole Porter has taught me, I've learned how to read people. At the door, I can, I can open a door and I already know, they teach you this, I, I know where they're from, I know, I look in the background, I see a picture of like a temple, ah, Mormon. I already know. And I know how to deal with them. I know what questions to ask. I know how to reach them. In the same way, I see the effects of you. I can... You know, that's one gift God has given me through corporating and practice and practice and practicing. I can go to someone at, at times with the ability to read people and the Holy Spirit. I can, it's almost scary that like I can read through the windows of the soul. I can almost read what they're thinking, especially having certain conversations. And that's what the Holy Spirit will give you through practice, how to read people. It is crucial. When you're preaching, when you're giving Bible study, this is crucial. You can see how they're reacting if they're convicted, if they're glued to you or not, you can see and you can read it and you know exactly how to make the appeal, how to uh, create your appeal, how to word your words in your sentences. Does that make sense? So when I'm up there, I can read, I can see I'm reading. Uh, like today, I never planned that. Today's plan was to get on our knees and have silent prayer and make you make your conviction, your um, commitment to God. That was the appeal. But I saw that the reaction was so strong today I said, that would be foolish not to make an altar call today, right? You saw that, the strong, it was a strong reaction today. And with Kona being here, I'm like, wow, they're, they're with me. I mean, the amens were strong and fervent and the excitement, and they're like, this, like I can't end, let's get on our knees and you make a commitment to God. I have to end like two things, let's do two appeals, you know? <laughs> Come to the altar call and just kneel one more time and do silent commitment to God. That's what I felt was so strong. You guys felt it, right? So to see that, if you were just like take off and like keep going and try to land and keep going and going and going and not land and finally you're in the air and says, okay, the trip is over, you know, and it's like ever like, it's almost like they, everybody wanted an appeal, right? They wanted you to make an appeal so they could make a decision. And for you not to do it, it would have been foolish, I felt. Uh, so do you see that? How you need to read the people? 
Now let's look at the next one. Acts chapter 8, verse 20 to 24. Acts chapter 8, verse 20 to 24. Could somebody read that, please? What did Peter perceive about Simon? Acts 8, 20 to 24. Could somebody read that, please? Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness, and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Look at verse 23. Paul said to Simon, yes, he knew he said things, but notice what he said, for I perceive, I'm able to read you, that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of sin. In other words, from your external actions, I'm able to read your internal motivations, internal sin and wickedness. Do you see that? So he's able to perceive or read Simon. And, said, and he actually makes a pretty bold statement. I can see that you're in a gall of, of wickedness, right? And, and, in, um, and that you're actually in bitterness and in a bond or you're a slave to sin. I can see that clearly. In order, he's able to read him and actually make an evaluation pretty boldly, right? So you can read people. Now look at this quotation from Ellen White from, about Jesus. I'm going to read it to you. Jesus watched with deep earnestness the changing countenances of his hearers. So what did Jesus do? Jesus what? Watch. Who did he watch? What did he watch according to this sentence? He watched what? The faces. Do you see that? He watched. So when Jesus was preaching, about, Ellen White doesn't say that he was looking at his notes. Does he say that? No. Did Jesus look at his notes when he preached? No. It says that he watched their faces, just like Jeremiah was told by God, watch it, but don't worry about it. The faces that expressed interest and pleasure gave him great, what is that word? Satisfaction. Satisfaction. So he's excited to hear, to see their faces light up. So he's reading the, the movement of the Holy Spirit. As the arrows of truth pierce to the soul, breaking through the barriers of selfishness, and working contrition, and finally gratitude, the Savior was made glad. When his eyes swept over the throng of listeners, and he recognized among them the faces he had, be faces he had before seen, his, uh, his countenance lighted up with joy. He saw in them hopeful subjects for his kingdom. When a true plainly spoken, now so he had one side, now let me share this principle. Remember this. This is helpful for Bible work. Great reaction equals great conviction. So everyone is going to be convicted if the truth is preached, right? But there's not only, see, most people think that people only react one way to conviction. But there's actually two ways to react to conviction. And right here in this quotation, we have one way is what we are used to. When you see people are excited, we come to the evangelist meetings, they're excited, they're studying the word, they're filled with joy, they're filled with peace, they're calm, they're happy. Are they being convicted? Yes. You, you can read that easily, right? But then there's another side. Okay, now follow me. It says here, when the truth plainly spoken touched some cherished idol, he marked the change of countenance, the cold, forbidding look, which told that the light was unwelcome. Do you see that? When he saw men refuse the message of peace, his heart was pierced to the very depths. I want to present to you that there's another side of conviction. It's called a negative conviction. So in other words, you come, some people come to church, they're once excited, and all of a sudden they're like, avoiding you they're not happy anymore uh, they don't come to church anymore they don't come to the meetings anymore they don't want nothing to do anymore in other words they were convicted yes but they're fighting that conviction 
and now there's no peace in the heart, right? So I want you to recognize that. And the greater the conviction, the greater the reaction. If they're reacting like very upset and angry, how can you say that about our church and, and not come anymore and avoid you totally? And not minor things like, oh yeah, like minor conviction, but great reaction means that they're greatly convicted. What you need to do is, you need to go there and sit down with them one-on-one and you need to talk to them and draw them and bring them to a decision. Because just because they're avoiding you all that, it's not to say, ah, forget them. They're not interested in the Bible. No, that's mean the Holy Spirit is working them. It's not reacting the way you're used to to think that the Holy Spirit is working, but the Holy Spirit is working. They're just that they have some kind of objection in a way that you need to deal with, and then you need to lead them to Christ. Now, that's another class. But I want you to realize that there's, when you're watching people, there's two types of reactions. There's a positive reaction, and you can tell. When somebody's like, I can tell, these are the reactions when people are, you can tell me. If somebody's like this, they like the sermon or they don't like the sermon? Does that make sense? Somebody's like this. They like the sermon or they don't like the sermon? They like it. Do you see that? Okay? Something like this. This. What is that? They like it or they don't like it? They like it or? Okay, like, do you see that? So you know you're looking out there. Now if somebody's like, <laughs> I've had people do that to me, right? What do you think? They like it or they don't like it? I'm like, you think they like that or they don't like it? I mean, you're not. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And this is. And yeah, you gotta read. I, for the most part, I can take it. I can read pretty good. Sometimes, like Lloyd said, you can't always read 100% because sometimes that is so convicted about their life and it's flashing before their eyes like, wow, I can't believe I did that. And if someone's staring into space, it's not all the time they're not listening to the sermon. They're just like, wow, I always was convicted him and I need to make some changes in my life. Yeah. And still, they're staring at the window, doesn't necessarily mean they're not listening to your sermon either, right? So you gotta kind of gauge it, yeah? Gauge it where they're at. So that's all the Holy Spirit. But you need to watch and read the people, see where they're at, see if they're with you. If they are with you very strongly, then make a strong appeal. Don't waste the moving of the Holy Spirit. It would be foolish for me not to make an appeal today. You have to, do you see it? You make a strong appeal. Same thing we do when the Holy Spirit moves when you're preaching. Things are right. And by the way, it's not your preaching that makes the, the sermon. It's everything that happens before the preaching. <laughs> That's, I've always believed that. If things are flowing smoothly in the worship services, and the spirit is high, the song service was good, the special music, the testimonies were powerful. I mean, if it's like that, it's like, oh, when you come in there, it's just powerful. Um, but if it's like dead and you got to bring it up, it's even much harder to preach. So just kind of remember that. Uh, okay, turn to Luke 23, verse 11. Now that we, we looked at the importance of appeals, and then we look at reading the people. Now we're going to look at for calling for a decision and the importance of it. Sorry, turn to Matthew 14, verse 9 first. And behold your finger in Luke 23, verse 11, because we're going to go through there right immediately after. Matthew 14, verse 9, and Luke 23, 11. Matthew 14, verse 9. King Herod was convicted that John the Baptist was a prophet, right? Remember that story? Okay, he was convicted. But he was deceived by Herodias, right? Um, well, his, uh, uh, he was actually with his brother Philip's wife, right? But then Herodias came and danced before him, right, and pleased Herod. And so he promised, whatever he asks, I'll give to you of the half your kingdom, he said. And then the mom said, I want John the Baptist in a, in a, to cut off his head and I want to see him in a charger right there. I'll put his head in a plate, right? Was that right or wrong? Was that right or wrong to cut off John the Baptist's head? It's, it's wrong, right? So, okay, but and he knew it was wrong, but he made an oath. Okay, now let me read verse 
8. Can someone read that, please? Wait, what? No, in verse 9, I'm sorry. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, the dame was sent with him at least to Samaria to be given to her. Ah, uh, so for oath's sake, he commanded that John the Baptist would be head would be cut off and given to Herodias and his brother's wife, right? So my question was that, did he do this willingly and happily? Is that what the Bible says here? What, well, how did he do it? How did he feel? He was sorry he did it. In other words, did the Holy, could you see here that the Holy Spirit at this point in time was convicting him that what he was doing was wrong? You see that? Even though he was a wicked king that would do such a thing, but do you see that he went, in other words, was he convicted that he shouldn't kill John the Baptist? Was he convicted that he shouldn't? But did he follow through with his conviction? No. And because he went against his convictions of what was right, how did he now feel of going against his conviction? According to the Bible, what word did he use? He's sorry. And that's what happens to people when they, when they feel convicted. And when you feel convicted and you don't go with the conviction that God has called you, guess what's going to happen? You're going to feel miserable, right? You feel bad. You feel like, man, how could I do that? And you know what you did was wrong. You've been there, right? I've been there. I know what it is like to go against God's convictions. And I'm sure you know how it feels like. And yet you feel sorry that you went against the convicting power of the Holy Spirit speaking to you and what you should do, right? So that's what he felt. Now I want you to follow the story now. So at one point in time, his heart was soft. His heart was tender. It was open to the Holy Spirit, he knew what was right, he knew what was wrong, and when he, even when he did what was wrong, he still felt the Holy Spirit in life, convicting him after, now this is not before he sinned, this is after he sinned. The Holy Spirit was still in his life, convicting him that he was wrong and he felt sorry. Do you see that? So even after we sin, the Holy Spirit convicts us. Now I want you to follow the story now to Luke chapter 23. Same person, but different time in the future. After he rejected the moving of the Holy Spirit, in his heart. After rejecting the conviction of his heart, Luke chapter 23, verse 11, how did King Herod now treat Jesus when it's time for Jesus to die? It's time for John the Baptist to die. He went his against his convictions. He felt convicted was wrong. He felt miserable and sorry. Now in the future, the same thing happened. Now Jesus' time for die. And, but how did he feel this time? Luke 23, verse 11. Could somebody read that, please? Now, this is Jesus, right? So how did Herod treat Jesus now? Mocked him? Made fun of him? Made, uh, treated him badly? They whipped him, right? I think it was Herod that tried to uh, uh, disgrace him in front of the soldiers, right? It was Herod. So you see how at one time, he did, he was, he wanted to, we told in spirit prophecy, he wanted to protect John the Baptist. Now from protecting him, a godly man, when God himself came, now he's mocking him. Do you see that? So in other words, at one time, when he didn't follow the convictions of the Holy Spirit upon his heart, what happened to the Holy Spirit upon his heart when he came to the same situation at another time? Huh? Was not there. Do you guys see that? It was not there. It was not there at all. Now, once you follow this quotation, these are powerful quotations. And this applies to evangelism, to Bible work, and preaching. Notice what it says here. This is why you should make appeal. When persons who are under conviction are not brought to make a decision at the earliest period possible, there is danger that the conviction will gradually what? Where away? Is that what happened with King Herod? Wasn't he convicted at one time and sorry for after he sinned? And did he feel sorry at mocking and beating up Jesus at the end? No, he didn't. Why? Because once you, once you neglect the convicting power of the Holy Spirit upon your heart, by your own choice, you, your heart hardens against the moving of the Holy Spirit in a few, at a later date. Do you guys see that? 
And then look at the next quotation. It's a powerful quotation. Listen to this. If there is not a decided application of the truth to their hearts, if words are not spoken at the, what is that words? Right moment. Right moment. You got to know the right timing. Your timing is crucial. Calling for decision. Calling for what? Decision. Make a decision. From the weight of evidence already presented, the convicted ones pass on without identifying themselves with Christ, the golden opportunity passes, and they have not yielded, and listen to this, and they go farther and farther away from the truth, farther away from Jesus, and never take the stand on the Lord's side. In other words, it is better to have never presented the truth than to have presented the truth and not make an appeal. You follow me? That's why it's not good to preach the sermon out there. you got to make people, people, maybe your sermon is so powerful and they feel convicted, but you, never, you didn't give them an outlet to make a decision. It's, that's why it's dangerous to invite family and friends to evangelistic crusades and they hear all the truth and we never follow up with them. Then it's way better that we invite them to the meetings and we follow up with them. We have personal Bible studies. It's not good for you to start Bible study with your family and your friends in your home and you're giving them Bible studies and Bible studies, but you're not, in your Bible study, you're not calling them to a decision. You're not granting them the opportunity to say, um, you know, that's another class on how to make decisions, but on how to do Bible work, but you're not making, calling them to give an opportunity or choice to choose to want to follow the Sabbath. You know, is there anything that would hinder you from following God? That's the question we need to ask, right? And they're going to say, yeah. I work on the Sabbath. You know what I mean? You have to, and then you deal with that. So, well, do you love the Sabbath? Who do you love more? What do you love more? Do you love your work? Or do you love God more? Which one do you love more? Well, of course I love God. Well, now is there anything that would hinder you from keeping the Sabbath holy? And then they're going to say, no, there isn't. Right? You dealt with the objection. You move on. And notice that the motivation is not manipulation. My motivation is not for you to be saved. My, my question was specific. This I think a lot of evangelists and Bible workers go wrong. The motivation was your job or do you love job or do you love God? The motivation is love. You see that? Your motivation got to be love. And then let them decide. You're not pressuring and say, come on, come on, you got to do it or you're going to go to hell or go to heaven, right? You see, that's not the motivation. That's the wrong motivation. You say, you know, you, you need to go to church, son, because you're going to go to hell. I mean, that doesn't work. Actually, they come to the point like they don't even care to go to hell. <laughs> they want to go to hell, in a sense. They're like, they totally rebel. You have to, the only thing that's going to motivate people is the love of God. And you got to call them to a decision between that and loving God. That's the only thing that's going to uh, motivate people. Any thoughts? Questions? Personally, she don't know love. The only thing that can break that is the love of God because a lot of people today, the fear doesn't cut it. Like, it's, they don't care. I mean, like, in the olden days, like, maybe fear, like, you're going to go to hell, or you're going to burn forever, or you're going to burn for longer than others. Adventists burn a little bit longer. Like, that's, a, I mean, to that, a lot of them were scared into the church, I feel. But, like, the younger generation, they don't care to go to hell. It's great. They want to go to hell. You know, it's, it's cool, you know, to go to hell. You know, it's cool to be wicked to get drunk you know it's, I mean great I want to hang out with the devil I mean that's just the attitude of the young generation fear fear doesn't cut it with, with um, the, this generation anymore and that's why the only thing that can keep the young generation is the love of God and is that true like even with us 
is not fear shouldn't motivate us, right? I hope it's not motivating any of us here. But the love of God is the only thing that's powerful enough to keep us or should keep us, right? Wouldn't you agree? I don't want to serve God because I'm afraid of Him. I want to serve Him because I love Him, right? I'm sure you too. So um, that's a good point. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people today don't even care they're going to burn in hell. Okay, look at the next quotation. Pretty powerful. It is much our duty to look at the after interest of a camp meeting as it is to look after the present interest. Because the next time you go, in other words, look at, after, not only people coming to the meetings, but after the meetings, follow up with them. Why? Because the next time you go to these camp meetings, and by the way, camp meeting was evangelistic back then, if they were impressed and convicted and did not yield to that conviction, if in other words, you're impressed and convicted, you didn't yield or follow that conviction, it is harder to make an impression in their minds than it was before, and you cannot reach them again. Amen? Are you following me? In other words, it is dangerous. It's like this. If you're going to have children, you've got to make up in your mind that you're willing to train up these children. That you're not going to have babies for the fun of it and let grandma and grandpa raise them. That you're going to take the time to raise them, right? That's what it means to have children. In other words, if you're going to have spiritual babies, you've got to make that commitment that you're going to raise them spiritually. Right now, my family... My s- two sisters are open to uh, Bible studies. And m- my sister's boyfriend. I don't know if I told you the story what happened. But they came to church here uh, like last month. They came from Hilo. But uh, they're open. But this is, my, this is my thinking now. Before I'd be all over it, right? But now I'm like, do I have the time and commitment to follow through with my sister? Because now, cause right, first of all, number one, the Holy Spirit does not always work. Only because that person is not open to the Holy Spirit at that time. My sister may not have been open to it five years ago because she wasn't. Because she had, her heart has been closed because of the situation, but something happened where she opened up. Now the Holy Spirit is working. Now I know it's the only time I can reach her. But there's another question. Besides, I know, the, I know how to read people and I know the Holy Spirit is moving, number one. Number two is that's not the only thing I need to ask. The second thing is, do I have the time to follow through? Because if I go half-hearted and I teach her the truth, and yet she doesn't follow through with her conviction because I didn't give all my all, then it's going to be worse off for her, and I may, ne- I may never get another chance. Are you guys following me? In other words, there's people in your family and friends which you probably never going to get another chance again because the truth was presented to them, and there was not good follow-up and good appeals in your Bible studies or in, in church, and um, they didn't follow through with their conviction, as it says here, and it says you, were, you can never reach them again. Does that make sense? Because uh, we closed the doors. We didn't follow through with it. So if the Holy Spirit moves, we got to move and do our best at it and uh, follow through. Any thoughts on that? First of all, the Holy Spirit doesn't always move. So whenever I see the Holy Spirit move, it's, to me it's exciting because it doesn't always happen upon people's hearts. And then second, you got to follow through all the way to the end. Uh, in other words, t- preaching is not teaching, passing on information. You're there to gain decisions for Christ. That's the difference between teaching and preaching. Get decisions. Make the appeal. Have them raise their hand. Have them get their legs working and stand up and stand up for an appeal. Have them come and walk to the front. Have them kneel down for prayer. Have them to make a commitment in their minds, right? Do some type of appeal. Make it different. If you feel, you know, really when you make appeals, why don't we make appeals? What's the reason why we don't make appeals? What do you think? Why wouldn't a person not make an appeal? Why would I not make an appeal? Well, let's talk about altar calls. I don't do altar calls all the time, but what's, this, what's the fear of me? Uh, why would I not be able to make an altar call? Why would I not want to do that? Because why? Why would you not want to make an altar call? Uh, Afraid what? No, we're going to go out.
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're right. And I've been there. I'm like, I'll preach this sermon. And I'm like, no one's listening to me. I don't cut this up and wrap it up already. So I did. And that's when people came to me and said, oh, that was, that was an answer to prayer. I'm like, but I didn't read it in you, you know? Like, how do you know? But you read as much as you can. But at times, the Holy Spirit, and I made an appeal too, that was different. But you're right. You got to listen to the Holy Spirit. But sometimes you listen to the Holy Spirit and people don't come up, right? Don't you think that's possible? I think so. Could be. I mean, did King Agrippa respond to Paul? I mean, at the end, he didn't. He said, you almost persuaded me. And the other one said he didn't, right? So does that mean that Paul didn't listen to the Spirit because no one, really, no one responded to his altar call? I mean, no. I think we need to still make the appeal but maybe somebody may not came forward, but in the mind they said they may have said, "Yes, Lord, I give you my life." Or the next, they said, oh, "Next time I'm gonna walk up." Right? That could have been the the pooling. Who knows the results? We we measure an outward results. I've I've done appeals where no one came up, <laughs> and you know what? I mean, it really hits your pride because, right? But we shouldn't. We should leave all pride out the door, right? When we go up to the phone. But really, you fight against self and your greatest enemy and pride because you don't want to look bad. I mean, you guys don't mind if I make it an altar call and no one comes up, right? You guys okay with that? Right? Okay, I feel the same way about you. If you make it an altar call and no one comes up, hey, praise God, you should give every, everyone an opportunity, right? Right. Is there a difference between uh, and a response from members? Altar call is important and it's actually important. But I think there's a You don't like appeals. I, not necessarily, I don't like appeals. Oh. <laughs> I don't like appeals that beg. Okay? Oh, beg. That beg. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you're preaching, and you're preaching to, I think, an intellectual level as well as an emotional heart level. Mm-hmm. Okay? And if he speaks to me at a intellectual, emotional heart level, don't think it spoke to me with an appeal that gives me a good thing. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like I said, I'm old school. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. I hope you don't feel that way here. I know. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, good. I'm old for that, but this is old school. And I don't want to discourage anybody. Yeah, yeah. But that was my 
Yeah. So what I'm saying is true. You, you exactly what I'm saying is true with the older generation. And yeah, and well, yeah. And so what I'm saying is actually true because and I'm not knocking in a sense because I think it's almost like because it was presented with the wrong motivation and guilt trips, the pendulum the pendulum swings. Yeah. So the, don't even talk to him, don't even say the word appeal, not let alone say appeal, you know, don't even mention that word appeal. So, um, and I think that's true. And that's the problem I think uh, has happened in the past. And it's not good. And that's why we've gone away from that. And that's why no one, no one makes appeals. And we go pretty much every church you go to, you're not going to hear appeals anymore. Maybe, uh, maybe in the South, maybe the African American churches. But like you go pretty much you visit churches today, like in Hawaii, you're not going to hear appeals. Very rarely you're going to hear appeal, right? I mean, pretty much. So that's good. And everyone can pray for the person, not only me, but whoever's up there, because I'm, I'm gone more than I'm actually here. If um, you can pray for the person, if you can have that mindset and education of we need to pray, because it's not just for me in the congregation, it's for everyone else up there. I think to answer your second question, how do you keep it fresh? Uh, you can get in the habit. If you write out your appeals, I write out my appeals. But if you're just like reading your appeals, I think when it comes to the appeal, you can't, Read it. There's no way. It's too fake. I think the freshness happens when you make an appeal and you're not reading. That's how you keep it fresh. Can that's the Holy Spirit giving you fresh thoughts and uh, fresh appeals? And uh, I think that's the best way. You just totally, and you're not drilling the same thing over and over. I think the motivation is key because I, it's the same thing like call porn. You go door to door, and I have people who are saying the same thing of, you call it an appeal, a close at the door, same thing at this door over and over and over, and guilt trip, the same thing over again and over again at this door, and same thing over and over again, and the same thing happens in the pulpit. Like you're saying the same thing every week, and you're putting the guilt trip, but if you can share like uh, the Holy Spirit truly leading, then uh, God can really bless. But if the Holy Spirit is not leading, a lot of times people depend upon the arm of flesh, right? And they use human manipulation and guilt because maybe as speakers they don't have the, the Spirit of God in their life. So it makes a difference. Good point. So keep fresh. If you can get away from your notes, actually you need to get away from your notes when you're preaching on the appeal. Good point. Okay, let's go to the last one, huh? Last point. So... Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 9. How does God make appeals to us? Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 9. Could somebody read that, please? Okay, God, when He makes appeal, He pleads with us, right? And He pleads with our children. He pleads with our children's children. In other words, God pleads. In other words, He tries to reach your heart. He makes urgent and... Um, close appeals to us, right? Direct appeals. Now, I want you to notice how Ellen White and James White used to preach. Notice what it says here. They did tag team preaching, by the way. It says here, Ellen White says, our meetings were usually conducted in such a manner that both of us took part. In other words, they both used to preach. She said, my husband would give a doctrinal discourse. In other words, would give the body of the sermon, the intellectual. And notice what she did. Then, then I would follow with an ex exhortation or encouragement of considerable length melting my way into the what? What is that word? Feelings of the what? Congregation. In other words, she reached for the heart. She went for the emotions. She went for the feelings at the end. What is that? That's the appeal. And I have, there's examples where Ellen White made appeals and she asked everyone to stand to their feet. So there's examples of making, standing to their feet and doing something physical rather than just personal. You know, people are telling me, well, you know, Appeals should be only personal. That's my own. That's between me and God. But the appeals that they did back then, Ellen White said, was actually calling people to external um, action to stand on God's side. But you notice that it was an intellectual discourse of the husband combined with the emotion of the heart and the feelings, which Ellen White ended. So they tag team because she could do it better than her husband. He do the intellectual, she do the emotions, the feelings. You see that? Thoughts and feelings. And thoughts and feelings combined make up the what? Ellen White, do you remember that quotation? I preached on it, forgot my sermon. Thought and feelings combined make up the moral 
character. Okay, very good. So you got character is made up of thoughts and feelings, right? So you have the thoughts, the intellectual thoughts of James White, combined with the feelings, Ellen White says, that melt the hearts of Ellen White, and you have the body of the sermon and appeal. That's why they had great success working as a team together. So if it has great success, you need the two whenever you present. You're using the emotions and the feelings of the appeal, and what you use for your appeal is based upon what you did in your body of the sermon. You built up your points, you grab all your points at the end, now you know this, this, and this, because of your love for God, then would you please serve Him? And I'm guilty of making appeals in the past of guilt. God has taught me uh, and rebuked me that the only motivation for serving God is out of love because I myself don't want to serve God out of any other motivation but love. So how can I ask anyone else to do the same thing? Right? No one wants to be told what to do. No one wants to be made feel guilty. Right? You don't want to be feel guilty, right? So why would you want to ask the people to feel guilty to do something that you yourself wouldn't want to be feeling guilty about, right? We can't do that. So don't use that method to try and get people to do what, even if it's right. So in order to change people's lives for the good, we must make an appeal at the end of every sermon. You must use the thoughts combined with the feelings. And in order to be good at this, you must first be able to read the people and then make a strong appeal based upon um, a stirring appeal to the heart. And once people see the love that God has for them, they will, not, they will accept the appeal that God has given to you to give to the people, right? If I just come out and I'm preaching and I'm just blasting the people and I'm blasting you and, and rebuking you, and then I tell you what you need to do, and you're going to go to hell, or God's not going to bless you, or you're not going to get God's blessings, it doesn't work. It works for a while, but it doesn't last. The only thing that's going to work Remember that three words, that God is love. Amen? So that's my appeal to you. <laughs> Remember that God is love. Right? Any questions? Thoughts? Yeah, two more. April 2nd, April 16th. April 2nd is the delivery. That's important. Uh, April 16th is the relationship, uh, that's important, but that's not relating to your sermon, it's after your sermon. But then the very next time is Marco, right? April 30, I think. Yeah, around there. So that's uh, pretty soon. So prepare. I if I was you, I would start my sermon. Even if you're like four, five, six months down the line, start writing it out, get your outline set, and then uh, start preparing already and looking at that the evaluation sheet I'm going to hand to you, you kind of know what to be looking for. And then you'll be ready. By the next time, you should have the full foundation of what, how to prepare a sermon and presentation. Actually, all the presentation is, how to create a sermon is already done. The next one is completely presentation. So it should be helpful. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. And we pray that this word will take hold of our hearts. And as we speak, and share the things we experience. May we preach with conviction and power, and may people experience and feel that power. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.